It's six o'clock. You're listening to Community Radio, KVMR FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Friday, December 15th. I'm Claudio Mendoza, and it's time for the KVMR News Magazine. In the next 30 minutes, we'll hear the latest in the Idaho-Maryland mine saga, learn what the Federal Reserve decided on Wednesday, and meet Nevada County's newest Superior Court judge. Molly Fisk closes out our show with an essay. First, regional weather. For Nevada City and Grass Valley, mostly cloudy tonight with a low around 41, sunny on Saturday with a high near 65. Saturday night will be mostly clear with a low around 43. A 30% chance of showers after 5 p.m. on Sunday, otherwise partly sunny with a high near 63. Mostly cloudy on Sunday night with a low around 46. Showers likely, mainly after 11 p.m. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, mostly cloudy tonight with a low around 24. Saturday, sunny with a high near 53. Saturday night, mostly clear with a low around 26. Sunday, partly sunny with a high near 50. Rain likely on Sunday night, mainly after 5 a.m., the low around 32 degrees. For Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight mostly cloudy with a low around 37. Patchy frost before 9 a.m. on Saturday, otherwise sunny with a high near 64. Saturday night, mostly clear with a low around 39. Sunday will be partly sunny with a high near 62. A chance of showers before 11 p.m. on Sunday night. Thunderstorms possible after that. Sunday night's low will be around 48 degrees. For Placerville and Angels Camp, partly cloudy tonight with a low around 45. Sunny skies on Saturday with a high near 65. Partly cloudy on Saturday night with a low around 47. Sunday, partly sunny with a high near 64. Showers likely Sunday night, mainly after 10 p.m., mostly cloudy with a low around 49. On Thursday, the Board of Supervisors of Nevada County voted unanimously to deny Rise Grass Valley's petition for recognition of vested rights related to the Idaho-Maryland mine, but the story isn't over yet. Al Stoller sat down with Ralph Silberstein of Community Environmental Advocates Foundation to tease out what could happen next. Ralph, what on earth was Rise Gold hoping to get through here? Well, clearly they were hoping to uh, gain a vested right so they could avoid having to get the use permit. How that would actually play out when you look at the details is rather complicated because it has to be looked at on each individual location and each usage. So they might have only gotten the permission to pull the ore out of the ground, but not to dewater the mine or even to build buildings. So it's a question in my mind whether that would really have helped them very much. But at the very least, they were hoping to um, avoid having to go and get the use permit for the project as it sits now. I think they're afraid that it'll be turned down. In my mind, it was uh, pretty much a long shot. If you look at the, the details and you think about the history of the mine, it's been really quite obviously shut down for 67 years and there's been nothing going on. So one has to ask, you know, what on earth were they really thinking? And you might say that they were hoping they could come in here with some uh, strong lawyers and really uh, kind of intimidate the Board of Supervisors and make them vote for vested rights. It also has enabled them to raise quite a bit of funding to continue operating because they were really low on cash. 
They're close to raising about a million dollars in the last three months, I guess it is. In other words, investors were willing to gamble that they'd be able to get away with it. Well, actually, the way Rise portrayed it on the mining investment sites is that it was a done deal. They they already knew they had this vested rights and that, they, that the county had to give it to them. So I feel that was disingenuous, but a lot of investors put money in. My bottom line is a lot of investors paid a stock in a company based on some assumption, uh, and the money ended up going into the pockets of a, a lot of very expensive lawyers. Is there something you have a feeling something else might have been going on? I mean, we don't really know exactly what they were thinking. They might still be planning on trying to, to create a, a precedent-setting case so that other mines in the, in the region would benefit from it or to make some sort of political statement. So it, it's hard to say what they're thinking. I've heard of lawsuits coming in now just trying to scare the county. Yeah, well, apparently uh, there's one um, news article that was posted in which uh, the CEO, Mr. Mullen, uh, stated that they were going to go for the use permit now, and then if they didn't get it, they would sue based on these, these actions. So, In other words, they can still go for a use permit, having been turned down for vested rights? Yeah, this vested rights was kind of a sideshow. <laughs> The, the use permit can resume processing. It, it, it basically, the, the, the processing of the use permit was, was um, delayed and set aside until the vested rights issue could be resolved. Because if they had gotten the vested rights, then the, the use permit would not be necessary. Now that they didn't get the, the, the vested rights, um, their only choice going forward is to try to get a use permit or go to the courts. But if they go to the courts, on this vested rights case, according to the legal analysis for, that we had done from Shute, Mihaly, and Weinberger, they have a, a really weak case. There's really no there there. The proverbial snowball's chance in hell. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Given the fact that they could still apply for a use permit, it could be that the IMM, the Idaho Maryland Mine, is not yet dead. No, it's not dead yet. You know, it's a really bad project, and we're hoping that the Board of Supervisors will look at the environmental impacts and the, the, the impacts to the neighborhood and to our community as a whole, and, and what we think is the right decision is to deny this project. Ralph, thanks very much for coming in and talking with us. Well, Alan, thanks for having us in. I've been speaking with Ralph Silberstein, president of the Community Environmental Advocacy Foundation. They're the folks behind the Mine Watch campaign. For KVMR, I'm Al Staller. On Wednesday, the Federal Reserve announced that it would keep interest rates unchanged for a third time in a row. What does that mean in the long run? Paul Emery talked with retired Federal Reserve economist Gary Zimmerman to find out. This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kalb, Wealth Management Advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983, on Spring Street in Nevada City, rickkalb.com. Gary, it's been a month or so since we last spoke up. What did the Federal Reserve policymakers decide to do with interest rates this week? And in your view, why did they make that decision? Well, Paul, it's nice to be back. 
Uh, yes, the Fed's monetary policy decision last week was mainly to continue to leave the short-term or overnight interbank interest rate that they target uh, unchanged. And that was, you know, I think based on continued progress in slowing inflation while the economy continued to expand and labor markets remained pretty robust. So, you know, that's all good news uh, from my perspective. And that was what likely helped also the stock market to respond with an upturn. So, you know, I think it's also important that 17 of the 19 Federal Reserve uh, meeting participants are projecting that the Fed will be lowering its target interest rate in 2024. Uh, most were projecting three reductions, and that would lower the Fed's you know target rate from the rough, roughly five and a quarter to five and a half percent range that it is now down to you know four and a half to four and three quarters percent range. Um, so that would be good news for the economy. Um, you know, and that those decisions, I think, were data driven with the overall inflation rate slowing with the economy, at, you know, in the full employment range and with policymakers expecting the economy to to grow about 2.6 percent at an annual rate for the entire year 2023. You know, that's that's good news. That's, you know, faster than they expect the economy to grow in the longer run. You know, so good news. So, Gary, what's the big takeaway from the, this information? Well, Paul, I think the Fed's decision to hold rates unchanged this week um, and to start the discussion about when and how fast rates may fall next year you know, reflects the fact that the economic data that we use to evaluate the national economic performance has been better than most of us expected this year, and especially recently with a very strong third quarter growth. Well, exactly how fast did the economy grow in the third quarter? Well, the growth rate forecast for the quarter ending in October were actually very uh, close to uh, the actual growth rate um, the, the, in the most recently revised number we've seen, and they were also very high. The U.S. economy's output measured by real or inflation-adjusted gross domestic product, or GDP, um, grew at a very rapid 5.2% annual rate in the third quarter, and that's you know way above the average growth rate for the economy. Um, of you know, that's typically about you know one you know, right close to two percent um you know and over the past four quarters real gdp has already expanded at about three percent uh at an annual rate you know again well above average so you know and growth occurred in most of the key, key sectors of the economy um spending was strong uh, growth in services and goods um industrial output was up um, government spending was strong um Private inventory investment, which in this case was a, a reflect strength, um, was good. So again, lot lots of um, positive indicators coming from the economy. Well, Gary, let's look to the future. Uh, do you expect the economy to continue to grow as rapidly in 2024? And should we be expecting another really strong year? <laughs> oh, Paul, I thought you might ask that. I, I've looked at several forecasts recently. One is the consensus blue chip economic forecast, which is based on a panel of about 50 forecasts and forecasters. And the other is the Atlanta Fed's GDP now estimate that's online and is based on the latest available economic data. Um, and both have been lowered in recent weeks, but they're still projecting growth, you know, a little over 1% at an annual rate for the fourth quarter. And the Fed policymakers are giving a projection for the whole year of 2024 that the economy would slow to about a 1.4% annual rate. So, um, you know, growth, but slower. 
Um, you know, on the positive side, there's a, a National Association of Business Economics uh, survey of their business economists, and three out of four of the business economists are now expecting the Fed will be able to engineer what economists are referring to as a soft landing for the economy, where it slows and inflation falls, but it doesn't drive the economy into a recession. So, you know, that that's a very good news. And, you know, is real improvement to the 2024 economic outlook. Well, Gary, uh, I'll give you a call in a couple of weeks and we'll see if the good news continues. <laughs> well, I hope so, Paul. Thank you. You bet. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and is currently a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. Listen to an extended edition of Gary's analysis at kvmr.org or on the KVMR News podcast. Nevada County has a new Superior Court judge. Kelly Reese brings us this profile. In late November, Nevada County Superior Court announced the appointment of a new county judge to replace a vacancy created by Judge Candace Heidelberger's retirement. The news release said Alyssa Bierkel would step into the role. Superior Court judges are elected. However, if a vacancy occurs that doesn't coincide with an election cycle, for example, in this case due to Judge Heidelberger's retirement, the governor appoints a new judge. Judge Bierkel will serve the remainder of Heidelberger's term and then will run for election in 2026, with the new six-year term beginning in January of 2027. This is a bit of a homecoming for Judge Bierkel, who was born and raised in Truckee. Judge Alyssa Bierkel sat down with me in the KVMR studio on the morning of her swearing-in ceremony, the day before her first day at the new job. As we're recording this, you're getting ready to start your new job. What's the role of a Nevada County Superior Court judge? Yeah, I think the role is, first and foremost, to serve the community and to do that within the confines of the law, right? Because there are a lot of rules about a lot of stuff. Um, and I think the, the role really is to give everyone their day in court, to make sure the process is clearly explained, and to you know, at least hear everybody out and make decisions that are not just in accordance with the law, but where people can feel that they were treated justly and fairly. You did your undergrad at UC Santa Barbara and then attended California Western School of Law in San Diego. And while there, you got involved with the California Innocence Project. Yeah, so the California Innocence Project is a firm that's housed inside of a law school that investigates and litigates claims of innocence. So people who were sent to prison for crimes that they did not commit. Being raised up in Nevada County, I, I don't think I was exposed too much to the issues of wrongful convictions. And when I learned about that problem, it really kind of ignited a fire inside of me that I felt I needed to get involved. Um, so upon graduating, I became a lawyer for, for the firm, and I have done that ever since um, until this transition. You served as litigation coordinator and as a DNA expert for the California Innocence Project. What were those roles like for you? 
My role as litigation coordinator was to manage all of the active cases we had going on. And when I say active, it could be anything that had been filed in court, whether it was a discovery motion, whether it was a motion to find out whether DNA evidence existed that could be tested, or whether it was an actual motion to vacate someone's conviction. Um, as far as the, the DNA component of my kind of expertise, I had, you know, working for a nonprofit like the California Innocence Project, we didn't have a lot of money. And I would be begging people to, you know, give us money so I could consult with a DNA expert to get some answers on, on DNA aspects of a case. And at some point kind of early on in my career, I thought, well, why don't I just learn everything there is to learn about forensic DNA? And then I can skip that step and skip the, you know, bake sales, raising money so that I could hire a DNA expert to consult with. And so I developed an expertise in DNA so that as a lawyer, I myself could actually do these reviews of DNA cases. Were you always drawn to the defense side of litigation or did you also have interest in prosecution? I originally wanted to go on the prosecution side. That is the side that appealed to me most. I always envisioned myself going that direction if I went into criminal law. Luckily, I've got ended up in a situation where it's almost as if I play both roles because when you're working in a, a nonprofit firm and people are claiming innocence, there's a lot of kind of false claims that are coming through. So here I am acting as the person of being like, nope, not this one, or yes, maybe this one, or nope, not this one. And so I kind of had a very unique role of playing really neither a defense attorney nor a prosecutor, but, but this, I don't know, kind of quasi-both role. In 2013, you walked from San Diego to Sacramento to protest the incarceration of 12 inmates and raise awareness for the wrongly convicted. You ended up presenting 12 clemency petitions for those inmates to Jerry Brown, who was California's governor at the time. The walk took 55 days, and you covered 712 miles. How did this idea come to be, and what was the walk like? The idea came about uh, because I have this wonderful boss and mentor named Justin Brooks, and we had a number of cases that we truly believed in the individual's innocence, and we even had evidence of innocence to back it up. But for one reason or another, we could not win those cases. You've heard of people, you know, maybe getting um, out on a technicality. These were people who were being kept in on a technicality, people who had missed filing deadlines, and all of a sudden their claim of innocence cannot be heard. Um, and so we decided Let's do, since the court system is not going to be able to help because of these different laws and procedural barriers, let's ask the governor for clemency because the clemency process is supposed to be kind of this fail-safe, you know, this catch-all. When everything else doesn't work, you can ask for clemency. And we had over a period of time, really tried to connect with the governor's office and we're getting a bit of radio silence from them. And my boss thought, well, you know what? And he's always been a big think outside the box. He says, you know what? Let's do something extreme. Let's get these clemency petitions and we're going to walk them from our office to their office. And we're going to drum up a bunch of noise in the meantime. And we're going to get the media involved. And we're going to, you know, we're really going to get attention, not only on these cases, but for wrongful convictions in general. And so we started walking. And by the time we got to Los Angeles, we had all the media out there on the Santa Monica Pier, and we got a call from the governor's office, and they're like, okay, you've got your meeting. And the, it was me and my boss, Justin, and another coworker, Mike Semanchik, and we looking at each other saying, do we just fly up there now, or do we keep walking? 
But all of us, when we commit to something, we see it through to the end. And so we just kept on walking and we walked all the way straight to the Capitol. The California Innocence Project's website says part of their mission is to work to reform the criminal justice system and train law students to become zealous advocates. What's it like now being a judge in a justice system that has come under increasing scrutiny in the past several years, and that many, such as the California Innocence Project, claim needs to be reformed? Yeah, you know, there's... The policy changes that went about through the California Innocence Project were heavily focused on innocent prisoners, mostly to make it easier for innocent people to prove their innocence and then to also compensate them for their time being wrongfully convicted. Because those two things used to be incredibly hard to do, and they really shouldn't be. And so those types of changes, you know, in a way, it was a privilege to just be involved in a minor change to make the, the system better. I think being a judge too, you know, I will be playing a part of making the system just a little bit better too on a daily basis by really providing a fair opportunity for everyone to present their side of the story, for me to make decisions that hopefully help people resolve the conflicts that they have. Because nobody wants to come to court, (laughs) you know, and so if I can be some sort of assistance to litigants or to defendants in helping turn things around, I absolutely want to do that. In your experience, what makes a good judge? I think one of the better qualities a judge can have is empathy. And I think that's really important because every decision that a judge makes is going to impact somebody's life, usually in a very profound manner. And so with empathy, to be able to recognize that this decision is going to impact maybe not just the individual in front of you, but their family members or their friends or or their children, that that's really important to be able to empathize with litigants that are coming before you. How do you separate personal politics from professional decisions when you're on the bench? For me, I was raised in a family that was not political at all. So it's interesting because I didn't, I, I wouldn't say that I was Really, I've never been super involved in in politics just because of the way that I was raised. And so for me, I don't think it's going to be a challenge at all to disassociate from from you know having any sort of politica, political activity. Are there any cases from your time working at the California Innocence Project that stand out more than others? There, every case is so unique in and of itself. The one case that was probably the biggest case of my entire career was the Brian Banks case. And that was a high school football player out of Long Beach that was falsely accused of rape. And the case made national news because he was a star football player and he was on his way to one of the elite colleges to play football. And it he was 16 years old at the time. It completely derailed his entire life. Um, so when his conviction was reversed and he was exonerated with the cooperation of the prosecutor's office, it really kind of blew up. And so it was a very chaotic period of my life where there were multiple interviews going on. There was a movie made about the case, in fact, and it's called Brian Banks. But um, it was that is the case that will always be the one that was you know, just so unique in so many ways. Does someone play you in the movie? Yeah, yeah, someone did. 
Did they consult with you at all? The you know, she she did. She actually came down to the office and followed me around for about a week. And and it, she was really tremendous. At one point, she could even walk the same way that I walk. I kind of have this, for lack of a better word, this like military type style of walking. And even on the walk up to Sacramento, I never was able to change it. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, she could do my walk. She could do the, my mannerisms. She was very, very good actress. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Kelly Reese for KVMR News. You can listen to a longer version of Kelly's talk with Judge Bierkel and learn more about the process of how a Superior Court judge is appointed on our website, kvmr.org. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. One of my friends just got COVID. She's on heart meds, so can't take Paxlovid. She's boosted to the limit and about to turn 82. Another friend, only 54, got over the illness recently and we met for coffee. She said it was different from the first time, two years ago, when her legs were badly affected. My sister has had some version of long COVID for the last year and a half that has random debilitating side effects. Remember when everyone was arguing about vaccines or no vaccines, how COVID was transmitted and staying home, wiping down grocery bags after leaving them in the car overnight? So much of that worry and antagonism has gone underground, stalemates nobody revisits. Today, the big argument is whether Israeli defense forces bombing unarmed people in Gaza should be called a war or a genocide, and why the U.S., our very own country, is vetoing a ceasefire. Yes, I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but also just stop it. I'm not the person to turn to for cogent political analysis of anything. And I recently got furious myself at someone, and so righteous and inflexible about it, it took six months and many dollars to resolve, not exactly in my favor. It was a good lesson in the costs of not compromising, which I can't help but compare to some of the world's current problems. In my case, I can see now, both sides of the situation were based in fear, What seems to be operating more widely on the planet is a combination of fear and greed. Gerrymandering, for instance, covers the fear of people unlike yourself taking things from you and perpetuates or maybe increases how you benefit from inequity, financially, emotionally, whatever. The word compromise comes from the late Latin. Calm means together and promise means promise. It describes not getting exactly what you really want because you're considering the wishes of other people or circumstances. As I went through my own situation, I noticed my lawyer kept bringing me back from outrage and moral superiority to the present moment and what was at stake. He was great at not giving me too much room to unfurl the flag of my personal kingdom, pointing out real risks I kept thinking couldn't possibly happen. It's the first time I've hired a lawyer for anything and was fascinating to experience, though not exactly comfortable. I like being right. I like how it feels in my body. A kind of bright energy and capableness comes over me. I get a lot done. Eating humble pie is no fun at all. 
but I am at heart a sensible person. If my situation were ever to recur, heaven help me, I hope the flame of outrage and the clear vision of what I deserve would be short-lived, and I'd settle down more quickly into designing a compromise. My current compromise is to wear a mask in grocery stores again. The pandemic stopped me from flying and going to movies, and I never resumed, but other habits have slid back into place. I like being alive and having my friends alive with me. Wearing a mask seems an incredibly small price to pay. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And that's the KVMR News Magazine for this week. KVMR gets support from the Interfaith Food Ministry, a local community resource helping people with food insecurities, along with Pet Food Weekly, providing meals during the holiday season. More information at interfaithfoodministry.org. And Mauer Law, with offices in Auburn and Truckee, serving clients throughout Northern California, specializing in wrongful death, personal injury, and elder care cases helping clients with serious injuries navigate the process. More information at M-A-U-R-E-R law. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local broadcasters and journalists. I'm Claudio Mendonça. From all of us here at the News Department, have a great weekend.